ever a choice of the nation Our chieftain so brave and so true And we'll go for the great reformation For Lincoln and Liberty too We'll go for the son of Kentucky The hero who drew him through The pride of the sucker so lucky the world has agreed that labor is the source from which human wants are mainly supplied. There's no dispute upon this point. From this point, however, men immediately diverge. Must disputation is maintained as the best way of applying and controlling the labor element. By some, it is assumed that labor is available only in connection with capital, that nobody labors unless someone else owning capital somehow by the use of that capital induces him to do it. Having assumed this, they proceed to consider whether it is best that capital should hire laborers and thus induce them to work by their own consent or buy them and drive them to it without their consent. Having proceeded so far, they naturally conclude that all laborers are necessarily either hired laborers or slaves. They further assume that whoever is once a hired laborer is fatally fixed in that condition for life and thence again in that condition is as bad or as worse than that of a slave. Well, uh, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast, and we're working our way through the writings, speeches and writings of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, we have finished the first volume of that collection put together by the Library of America, which covered all the writings up to 1858, including the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which we spent three episodes on in the, in the previous episodes. And now we're jumping into uh, the final uh, you know, seven years of, of Lincoln's life, six and a half, uh, beginning with the writings of 1858. So most of this series, these final seven episodes in which we're going to we'll dig, um, really focus on, we're going to be really focused on the Civil War in the next seven episodes, right? But we're not quite there yet. We still got the presidential campaign and, and what he did in, in, in 1859. In fact, I think these documents from 1859 are quite interesting, the speeches he gave in these years. That's why I chose... Uh, to, to begin with a bit from a speech he gave in Milwaukee to an agricultural association where he really talks about uh, labor and capital. And I think looking at that from the context of maybe the 1870s or 1880s and the big conflict when, when the struggle between labor and capital became really the national focus, the national attention, it, it's interesting that, that Lincoln was talking about that. And, and we were so used to him in these speeches and the Lincoln-Douglas debates talking mostly about about you know, should slavery exp expand? You know, is slavery right? And then what should we do about that? Um, is slavery wrong? And the, or what should we do with it? I mean, that's the theme in the Lincoln-Douglas debate, especially when he was at his best, right? But underneath that is his, his kind of the theory of free labor, right? And that was a lot of what was driving this conflict, was this concept of free labor and slave labor, and what would be the future of the nation as it expands to the West, right? Why was the West so important? Why, did, was, why was it such a big deal if there'd be slaves in New Mexico or Kansas? These didn't seem to be really prime places for the slavery to expand, did it? Um, you had, they take a state like Wisconsin, right? Of course, slavery was never allowed there, but, you know, it, it grew from, I think, like 25,000 to 250,000 in, in a decade, by the time it became a state, and I think that's between um, 1840 and 1850, the two censuses, um, you know, massive growth. And that was going to spill over into the West, right? So why this concern about, about, about 
slavery in the West. Well, you know, of course, Lincoln believed it was a real threat that slavery could become a national institution through a Supreme Court fiat, essentially. And that's why he really saw it was that we have to kind of draw the line at, at Congress can regulate slavery in the territories. And, and that would be the bastion behind which, you know, the free states could, could endure free. Nevertheless, though, behind all this is, is this concept that the West should be the, the place for free labor to go, right? And what does that mean? What does free labor really mean? And in that speech he gives to Milwaukee, and we'll take a closer look at it later in this episode, he's really grappling with that, that question. Is a, is a hired hand a free labor, right? And is, is it wealth that creates labor? Is it capital that creates, or is it capital that creates wealth? Or is it labor that creates wealth? And, and if it's labor, then that labor can be under the thumb of capital. It can be owned, as in the case of slavery, or it could be you know, more free and independent, right? Or does wealth only come from capital uh, or from the investment of capital? In that case, then workers are sort of doomed to be hired hands. And, you know, is that it's better than being a slave? I'm sure, I'm sure Lincoln would say, but... But uh, it's not as free as, as he's envisioning here, I think. And of course, one of his great domestic achievements during the war, I mean, of, of the whole Republican Party, was the Homestead Act, which essentially gave, uh, in theory, free land to, to settlers. A lot of it went to railroads, and there's a lot of corruption, and, and it didn't quite pan out the way we want. Of course, it was at the expense of Indians and, and, and all that. But nevertheless, the idea there was, you know, free labor, right? That's the cornerstone of the Republican ideology. So it's not just about slavery in the territories. There's a broader conversation being had. And, you know, even in the years after slavery ends, after the 13th Amendment, you know, this question of what is a, what is free labor matters. The term wage slave, of course, has been, had been floating around already, but it would continue to be talked about in labor circles. So anyways, um, where in this episode, we'll be looking at that speech and other speeches and writings, Lincoln, um, speeches he gave and writings he, he, he produced in 1859. Uh, but first, briefly, what was Lincoln doing in 1859? What was, what was going on in his life? Well, as the year opened, he was still technically running for um, the, the Senate. In fact, uh, the popular vote went to the Republicans uh, in the state legislature. And so, again, the way these really worked is the, the, the new legislature would vote for their Senate uh, candidate. So there'd be, it, it wasn't a direct election for senators, but the idea was that there was at least some popular input through who was chosen to sit in the local state house. Uh, the Republicans won that popular vote, but still Lincoln lost the Senate election in, in the Illinois state house, uh, 54 votes to 46 votes. Uh, to the incumbent uh, Stephen Douglas, who had been there for a few years. Stephen Douglas would then continue to serve um, for a couple years until, I think, 1861. He would run for president in 1860 as, as a, the Northern Democratic candidate. Of course, the Democratic Party gets split. And next episode, I think we'll get into the numbers of the Electoral College, because I think there's some misunderstanding um, about <clears throat> why Lincoln won. Um, it, it wasn't just because, I mean, Lincoln would have won straight up, even if it was just a two-person two race. That's, that's the short answer there. But um, certainly the Democratic Party was, was split. Um, and mostly what he's doing in these years is he's engaging in, in, in um, speeches for different Republican candidates throughout mostly the Midwest. So he goes to Ohio, 
Uh, he gives speeches in Illinois, Wisconsin, these kinds of places. So he's sticking mostly in the Midwest, but he's getting more of a national focus, in part because of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And he wants to publish them. He does have ambition to have more of a, a national political voice, I think, and, and a larger place in the Republican Party. And he saw publishing the Lincoln-Douglas debates as a way to do that. So he's pursuing that publication. And that will be published in 1860. It'll be out in print. and It'll be there for voters to, to read. Um, it will be there for Southern voters to read uh, and for Southern aristocrats to read when they de when they decide in 1860 after the election that they cannot live in a, they cannot endure they can't tolerate Lincoln as president. Um, so that's it. And he does do, kind of finish his lawyering career. He makes one last trip in the Eighth Circuit um, doing his lawyering job, but that's the last time he's going to be a lawyer. Obviously, in 1860, he runs for president, wins, and and no time for lawyering. But anyways, that's the brief uh, rundown of what he did in 1859. But um, we got a lot of interesting documents here in this in this collection. The first hundred pages or so of of this volume, um, all covering 1858. Mostly their lectures, mostly their speeches. Um, and there's and there's some letters here too. So um, there's a few issues I want to talk about. Uh, in particular, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of bring them up as I go through the, these documents. I think one thing that comes up a lot in his letters to different Republicans and to political supporters is kind of the strategy of the Republican Party. And this is something that comes quite a lot in these. And he seems to be someone that is being asked advice about, you know, one unfortunate thing is we got these letters. We don't always have the, the original letter that it wasn't a back and forth, right? So you can usually work out who is he responding to and why. Um, but we don't got like the full inquiry all the time, but we do get his response, right? And, you know, for instance, I'll take a look at one. This he wrote in January of 1859. So this is right after he lost his, the Senate election. To Elihu B. Washburn. And he's, it's a very short letter, and, and I can just read the key parts here. Um, he's, he's talking about uh, his brother this guy's brother and he says a, a speech he gave and he says it's very well timed we needed from someone who can get the public attention just such a speech just at this time his objection to the oregon constitution because it excludes free negroes is the only thing i wish he had admitted now that's a very important little mention there is this guy that he's writing his brother anyways gave a speech in which in some way he he criticized the oregon state constitution um, Oregon, of course, I think it enters in 1859 as a, as a free state, obviously a free state, but it, it, it prohibited migration of free blacks. And, and Lincoln is not a, a radical on race relations. He's not a social egalitarian. He said a lot in the Lincoln-Douglas debates to defend himself from accusations of that. Um, now, I don't know if he thinks that provision is just or not. I think what he, he thinks here is it's not politically wise to push too far racial equality at a time when the Republican Party is trying to win national office and trying to win the presidency and think and they, they think they have a good chance, right? They they had a solid foundation in 1856, being a essentially a an insurgent party, and not technically a third party, because the Whig Party had already fallen apart by that point, but you know, still building itself in one a fair number of northern states. And it wasn't hard to see that if they could just win a few more northern states, you know, they could win the whole thing without even southern votes. Which, of course, is what happens in 1860. So Lincoln here is very, very concerned. And a lot of these 
that stays with political expediency. And, and a lot of that means uh, toning down the, the rhetoric on, on race. And here's an example of that. So there are these radical Republicans. And, and I don't know if this guy's brother is one of those or not, but he, he had a legitimate criticism of a constitution that said black people, free black people can't move into our state. Um, there are free soil people in the Republican Party who believe that the West should basically be for white people. Free labor, white free labor. And, and Lincoln here is aware of that and giving that advice. And that's going to come up a lot. I'll mention other examples of it uh, in, this, in this episode because there's quite a few in these letters. Now, for instance, in another letter at the, around the same time written to Lyman Trumbull, the, the, other, the other senator, the Republican senator from, I guess Republican at the time, he was elected as a Whig, um, but from Illinois, he says, I don't think there's much danger of the old Democratic and Whig elements of our party breaking into opposing factions. They certainly shall not if I can prevent it. So that's what's on his mind. I also think in this in this letter you see he's, he's taken himself as sort of a leader of the party, at least in, in Illinois at this time. So um, the next document, I, I, I just love this. It's so weird and I've never heard it talked about before. I didn't ever know he gave this speech. Um, it's, it's called the Lecture on Discoveries and Inventions. It was given in Jacksonville, Illinois. And it's just a really bizarre kind of, it's almost a type of futurism he's engaged in where he's talking about really the technologies, the, the science of the time and the tensions it's emerging and, and the kind of the promise of the future. It's, it's almost like it's out of, out of like 19th century science fiction. In the way it's kind of envisioning kind of a, a future of, of, of like with division of labor. I thought for a while I was like reading like things from that you'd see in the Iron Heel by Jack London or, or Edward Bellamy at times. It's, it's really a, a fascinating uh, little document. When did he give this? He gave it February 11th, 18, 1859. And I'll just read the beginning here. He says, we have all heard of young America. He's the most current youth of his age. Some think him conceited and arrogant, but... Has he not reason to entertain a rather extensive opinion of himself? Is he not the inventor and owner of the present and sole hope for the future? Men and things everywhere are ministering unto him. Look at his apparel and you'll see cotton fabrics from Lanchester and Lowell, flax linen from Ireland, wood cloth from Spain, silk from France, furs from the Arctic region with a buffalo robe from the Rocky Mountains as a general outsticker. Beside his table, besides plain bread and meat made at home, are sugar from Louisiana, coffee and fruits from the tropics, salt from Turk Island, fish from Newfoundland, tea from China, and spices from the Indies. End quote. Now, of course, he's talking about young America here, you know, 80 years old, young, but, you know, still a young nation uh, in the world, but an emerging power. He's got this vision of America as an emerging power. But he doesn't just talk about trade here. He's not just talking about... Um, Commerce, because all, all that stuff could come from commerce, right? Of course, the U.S. was emerging as a commercial power uh, in the Pacific, um, in Turkey, and in, in the China trade and all that. But he, he really gets into a discussion here of technology. I, I found it really quite intriguing. He goes into quite a bit about, about why young America, this character young America, the, the nation, right? It's a nationalist uh, speech, to be sure why it's so good at invention, right? And it has to do with observation, reflection, trial, kind of an entrepreneurial spirit to a degree. And he gives all these examples of, of like the impact of the steam engine on the, the connecting together in the nation and all that. He talks quite a lot about uh, division of labor even. 
But it's in the second half of this speech where he kind of shifts gears from talking generally about about science and technology to kind of language and and uh, semiotics almost and the importance of of language and words and 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 dictionaries and all these things in creating a a basis for a, a scientific conversation i guess and he he goes back to like adam and eve even and and how they had one of their first jobs of, of adam was to name the animals right if you read the bible you might remember that so um even talking about adam and eve he talks about adam and eve as the inventors of a division of labor he writes quote he says this uh and this reminds me of what passed unnoticed before, that the very first invention was a joint operation, Eve having shared with Adam in getting up the apron. And indeed, judging from the fact that sewing had come down to our times as woman's work, it's very probable she took the leading part. He perhaps doing no more than to stand by and, needle and thread the needle. Then proceeding to be reckoned as the mother of all sewing societies and the first and most perfect world's fair, all inventions and all inventors then in the world being in one spot. But speech alone, valuable as it's ever been and is, has not advanced the condition of the world much. And, um, and, and that's why he gets into his concern about, about language and learning and education, because he sees that as being the foundation. But I think his key, in, his key observation here, which is, of course, very key, is that all science, all invention, all discovery is, is collective. It, even, he says here, even the first, even Adam and Eve had to work together to invent what they, to achieve what they achieved, right? Um, so he's saying at the at his foundation, all science, all technology is cooperative. It's 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 um, you know it's it's cooperative. He he mentions I think it's in here a little bit. He mentions even about patents, saying you know it's wise to let patents exist because they give some incentive to do that. But at the same time, he there's an argument in here against intellectual property. Right. I, you know, I, I think I kind of agree with him that maybe there's some place for for some sort of of, of like short term patent in which an inventor can get some kind of you know, income from something they invented. Right. I don't know if that should be a corporation. I, you know, I, I think that should be somehow distributed among the people who actually do the invention. But, you know, it's at the same time, we have to acknowledge that you're not doing it alone, man. You know, you are you may be change or adapted something or innovated something but you're building off the collective wisdom of humanity and many other people and the users of those inventions and 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 all that so you know it's there's a kind of a tension here about intellectual property a little bit but his biggest concern is about is about the need of of education so here's a little of what he says about that but to return to the consideration of printing it is plain that it is but the other half and the real utility the better half of writing and that both together are but the assistance of speech in the communication of thoughts between man and man. When man was possessed of speech alone, the chances of invention, discovery, and improvement was very limited. But by the introduction of each of these, they were greatly multiplied. When writing was invented, any important observation likely to lead to discovery had at least a chance of being written down, and consequently a better chance of not being forgotten and being seen and reflected upon by a much greater number of persons. Um, so anyways, that's, that's more or less his speech. A lot of interesting things here. I just, maybe I'm kind of overly, uh, in awe of, of finding this in there. I've never knew he gave this speech. I, you know, I know he was an inventor. He did have a hold a patent at one point, um, for, for something. So, you know, he was a kind of a self-educated man and, 
you know, and it's not there's nothing here that's maybe surprising, but you know, I just never know he gave this speech, right? When he was going around talking about the same stuff, Douglas, slavery in the territories, the Republican Party, and all that stuff, that this speech is in there. It's the same way with the Milwaukee speech we're going to get to later on, where it's all about labor. It's it's not a speech really about slavery. It's a, it's it's a it's a speech about where value comes from, where wealth is created from. Um, but anyways, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Shouldn't get ahead of myself too much. Um, now, of course, some of the a lot of the speeches he gives in this period throughout the Midwest are on the issues of that he's been talking about since the Lincoln Douglas debate, since the Senate run, and that's certainly true of the speech he gives in Chicago. Uh, this speech was given on March first, eighteen fifty-nine. This is a good example of a speech that that sort of reads like a greatest hits. Uh, collection from the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Um, of course, his ideas are pretty well formed and he's spreading them, right? This is before YouTube. This is before, you know, you had, of course, mass media. You could read these speeches in the in the newspapers, but people still wanted to go see him in person. And, and you know, he, had, he spread this message to many different people through many different lectures he gave. Um, so it, it does sound like a, a greatest hits. And he's often talking about, like, you know, shouting out or giving call-outs to actually things he said in those debates, people, things, things people may have read about and known about, you know, it kind of, again, it kind of does feel like a greatest hits or how a performer will do his, his most popular songs, even though, you know, he may have performed it a million times. Right. Now, the heart of this particular speech, though, is, is this issue of universal morality about slavery, right? Something he really hit on in the later Lincoln-Douglas debates. Go back to my previous episode on that. It's the one where I look at Lincoln-Douglas debates 5, 6, and 7, where I, where I talk about how Lincoln really elevated the debates to, to the moral level um, by talking about slavery as a moral issue, not strictly a political issue. Talking about it as a social and moral and, and also, in a sense, a political wrong. Um, but here he comes out right and says there are universal there's a universal moral right or wrong about slavery, and that's where our, that's our starting point, right? And from there we can talk about policy, the best way to see slavery gradually um, ended or dying out, right? Uh, but he also rests the future of the Republican Party on that question, right? If Americans will either agree with us or not agree with us on this moral question, if they don't. There, you know, there's we're not going to be necessarily successful, right? And if there are Republicans who don't agree with the immorality of slavery, then they're, wrong, they're essentially in the wrong party. I think that's something he hits on a lot in the Douglas debates um, and throughout these speeches of '59. Here's a bit of it. Uh, suppose it's true that the Almighty has drawn a line across this continent on the south side of which part there was people who will hold the rest as slaves. And the Almighty ordered this, that it is right, unchangeably right, that men ought to be held as slaves, and that their fellow men will always have the right to hold them as slaves. I ask you, this once admitted, how could you not believe that it's not right for us or for them coming here to hold slaves on this side of the line? Once we come to acknowledge that it is right, that it is the law of eternal being for slavery to exist on one side of the line, have we any sure ground to object that slavery is slaves being held on the other side? Once admit that position that a man rightfully holds another man as property on one side of the line, you must, and when it suits his convenience to come down on the other side, admit that he has the same right to hold the property there. And um, so that's the, that's the quote, and it's a pretty powerful one, but it gets to the heart of his criticism of, of the Douglas position, right? Where Douglas is saying, well, it's all up to local democracy to decide whether this is right or wrong. 
you know, well, that, that's not how we, we don't vote on morality, right? We don't take a vote to see whether murder is wrong, right? Whether stealing is wrong or something, right? Or it depends on your moral ethical code, right? I suppose. If you think that, I guess if you think if morality comes out of a consensus based on what works in societies, you could say there's somehow an agreement, a social contract of sorts going on there. But that's certainly not how Lincoln and most Americans at the time saw morality. They saw morality as, as essentially coming from God, right? The religious interpretation of it. Um, so from there, he says, you know, the fate of the Republican Party rests on these first principles, right? And I think it's an important reminder. He's He's, it's interesting that at the same time, behind the scenes in his letters, he's saying, well, maybe we shouldn't talk about this. Uh, let's not talk about fugitive slave law. You know, let's leave that for now. Let's, you know, if Oregon doesn't want to let free blacks, then okay. Let's not make that an issue. But in his public proclamations, he's talking about fundamental principles, very black and white terms. But he seems to be more gray in his, in his letters because he is trying to build a party that's going to win an election and what he sees as a very important election. All right. All um, right. Moving on, uh, in a letter to, to Henry Pierce and others, I don't know who these others are. Um, now, Henry Pierce was a Republican from Massachusetts. He served um, in the House of Representatives in, from 1860 to 62, so that first Civil War Congress uh, where there was a Republican majority. Uh, later on, he was mayor of, of Boston. Um, so he, he's just, he's a Republican. Um, that's what we need to know about him. Uh, this letter, and again, I don't know who the others are, but I assume there are other Massachusetts Republicans. Uh, Lincoln here is writing about Thomas Jefferson. And what the point he makes is about property, because there's this focus in the Dred Scott case on the absolute right to property. That's certainly part of the Democratic Party's position on, on the expansion of slavery, is that you have certain rights to property and Congress shouldn't interfere. State government, that's a different matter, but... Congress shouldn't interfere with property rights in the territories. Um, and then Lincoln in this letter says, well, let's actually consider Jefferson's position on this. And he argues, you know, and I don't know if that's right. I, I did that whole series on Jefferson and I can't say clearly if this is true. I, I guess it, it, it might, he might be close to being right here, but I'm not sure. And he essentially says that the Jefferson Party, right, that Revolution of 1800 was about the elevation of personal rights over property rights, right? I, I guess that's a way of framing that Federalist Republican, Democratic Republican debate, uh, which is, I guess, it's Republican and the Federalist debate. I guess we'll just simplify it. Um, that, that conversation where like the, the idea that the Federals were an aristocratic party that were kind of married to property and wealth and, and, the, and the Republicans were more about the rights, right? And of course, we look at the Virginia-Kentucky resolutions being so key to that, being defenses of, of individual rights. So there's something to that. I think he's right to a degree, but obviously Jefferson seemed to believe that slaveholders had a right to their slaves. He, he, he kept his. Um, he certainly was conflicted about slavery. We talked about that a, a lot, but you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure how Jefferson would frame it exactly in this way. But, um, but he says the Democratic Party has kind of moved away from these principles. He says that he wrote, said that wrote the democracy of today hold the liberty of one man to be absolutely nothing when in conflict with another man's right of property. Republicans are on the contrary, as are both 
the man and the dollar, but in cases of conflict, the man before the dollar. End quote. So I think that's key. That's a, that's a principle. It's a value here, right? That, yes, we defend property rights, but if it's in conflict with liberty, um, we side with we side with liberty. We side with the rights of the individual. Um, and that's that's key. You talk to libertarians these days and they say, you know, as long as you have property rights and you defend property rights, like liberty's almost tied to that, right? They don't see a tension in these things, right? Um, and I, I happen to, to see this, see the same tension that Lincoln's seen. And I appreciate that he's defining it so clearly to these um, Republican um, supporters. Um, so anyways, that's that's an important, important letter, I think. Um, but not long after this, he, for instance, just in the next page of the volume, this was a letter he wrote on April 30th, 1859, to Simon P. Chase, of course, another Republican politician, he basically says, let's not make the Fugitive Slave Law a big deal. Oh, sorry, that's the wrong Salmon P. Chase letter. Um, the one I'm talking about, he wrote in June 20th of 1859, but also just Salmon P. Chase. Um, this one's about the Fugitive Slave Law, and he writes... My view has been, and it's simply this, the U.S. Constitution says the fugitive slave shall be delivered up, but does not explicitly say who shall deliver it up. Whatever the Constitution says shall be done and, and has omitted saying who shall do it, the government established by the Constitution is vested with the power of doing it, and Congress is by the Constitution impressively empowered to make all laws which shall be necessary for proper for carrying into extension all powers vested in the Constitution. Blah, blah. So the point here is... The Constitution is pretty vague about how the fugitive slave law is supposed to be done, right? It's Congress's job to actually pass that law. Now, the trouble is, if you're anti the fugitive slave law and you're someone like Lincoln, is Congress did do that. Congress did pass a fugitive slave law in 1850 that clearly defined the, the obligations of who is going to, you know, who's responsible for bringing the slaves back, what are the penalties for not doing that and all that. So that's the trouble. Right, a fugitive slave law was enacted. So, what, how do you deal with that in a way that doesn't damage the party's future? And his conclusion here is that introducing this into the platform of the Republican Party, basically a proposition for repealing the slave slave law, fugitive slave law, will quote explode the convention and the party. And he ends the letter with that. He says it's it's not good. It, it will break up the party, and therefore, essentially, he's saying we shouldn't do it. Now, he does say if we're in power, we have the right. To, certainly the right to write a new fugitive slave law. Congress has the right to d interpret that part of the Constitution that says whatever, they, they shall be delivered up, whatever that means. But he says as it is now, he's not, he's not advising making that a part of the national party platform. So again, that very, that grayness of, of, of party politics is something Lincoln is, is, is dealing with. Of course, he gets elected under the belief that he's a moderate Republican, right? That's, you know, of course, there's a lot of reasons he was chosen as the nominee, but one was that he was seen as, as a fairly moderate moderate Republican. And I think these letters and this conversation with other party members helped build up that reputation. All right. Um, next, we have two fairly long speeches. Um, one in, in Columbus, Ohio. That was September 16th. And one in Cincinnati, September 17th. So these are like basically back-to-back -back, um, speeches he gave. They're not, they're not indistinguishable. He does cover some of the same ground here. Um, 
they, they seem to have different functions. I would say the first, the, the speech in Columbus was more aimed at telling the history of slavery. At least that's how I read it um, in, in America. And, and how that leads into the sexual conflict. So maybe not the history of slavery so much in the terms we might study it now. That's kind of a social history or an economic history. But, but this history of, the history of slavery is a political issue in the United States. Um, that's, of course, what he's ex- expert at. He's going to do a lot of that in the Cooper Union speech, which, of course, is a much more significant speech in Lincoln's career, a much more significant speech, a much better speech, um, yeah, all that. Now, the speech in Cincinnati kind of builds off this. It's, it's almost a sequel. There is some repetition, I think, between the two, as you would expect, but it is a bit of a sequel. But mostly what it does is it rehashes the Lincoln-Douglas debates um, and, and his criticism about... Uh, on the issue of popular sovereignty and all that. So um, I'm a bit hesitating how much to say about these speeches, both because they, they both look back to the Lincoln-Douglas debates and, and rehash a lot of that, and also kind of look forward to the Cooper Union speech, which is what is going to the focus of the next episode is going to inevitably be. Now, I think the most important thing to say about the Columbus, Ohio speech is that, that Lincoln traces the history of slavery um, in the United States is, is one of decline um, at the time of the revolution, right? So basically he sees slavery as something that's falling away really until 1854. I mean, he goes that far, right? Um, to, to essentially say up until that point, slavery was contained and, and regional and declining. And, and of course, his argument is that the two things that change that are the Dred Scott decision and, and the, the, the Nebraska bill. Here's what he, he said in that speech. The American people on the first day of January 1854 found the African slave trade prohibited by law of Congress. In the majority of the states of this union, they found African slavery or any other sort of slavery prohibited by state constitutions. They also found a law existing, supposing to be valid, by which slavery was excluded from almost all of the territory the United States then owned. This was the condition on the country, in the, on, in the country in reference to the institution of slavery on the 1st of January 1854. A few days after that, a bill was introduced into Congress, which ran as regular course in the two branches of the legislature and finally passed into law in May, by which the act of Congress prohibiting slavery from going to the territories was repealed. Right. And then in the second half of the speech, he, he, he traces into, um, you know, his attacks on Douglas and his attacks on the Kansas bill and his, his attacks on, the, on Dred Scott. Um, so that's... Uh, that's what the Columbus speech does. But I think it's a really good summation. I, I, I don't feel the need to go blow by blow here because we've talked about this stuff so much. But it's, it's a very good summation, I think, of his position. Not as good as the Cooper Union speech um, um, at all, but it, it's, a good, it's a good introduction to that. It, the Cincinnati speech is basically the greatest hits of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Um, but there are three really special things about this that's, that stand out, it seems to me, that go above and beyond maybe what he was talking about before. The, the first is, is a passage in here on the Bible. And he actually takes on the fact that many Southerners were using the Bible and using morality to defend slavery at the time, right? Now, the way most historians, I think, now look at this is the defenses of slavery that emerged in the, really starting in the 1820s, um, emerge in a conversation with 
anti-slavery thought, right? It's in a time when there isn't much anti-slavery thought, you don't feel the need to defend it. People didn't feel the need to defend it. It just was, it just existed, right? Like you don't have these long defenses of slavery in the Roman Empire, right? Everyone just took slavery for granted. Um, of course, you know, in the, especially in the 50s, um, but as always the 40s, you got a lot of writing defending slavery from various points of view, right? Political, economic, legal. Um, of course, a, a big part of this was the, the moral argument for slavery. Slavery is a positive good, not a necessary evil, as Jefferson saw. So what, and he kind of blames Douglas of, 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 of being kind of indifferent to this, right? Because... For Douglas, it's all about democracy. It's not about right or wrong, right? The Southerners are actually going farther, saying, "No, no, no! It's not just about democracy. Slavery is an absolute right under the under the Bible." Um, so here's what he he said in the speech: In Kentucky, perhaps in many of the slave states, certainly you're trying to establish the rightfulness of slavery by reference to the Bible. You're trying to show that slavery existed in Bible times by divine ordinance. Now, Douglas is wiser than you for. Your own benefit upon that subject. Douglas knows that whenever you establish that slavery was right by the Bible, it will occur that that slavery was the slavery of a white man, of men without reference to color. And he knows very well that you may entertain that idea in Kentucky as much as you please, but you'll never win any northern support upon it. He makes a wiser argument for you. He argue, makes the argument that slavery of the black man, the slavery of the man who has skin color different than your own, is right. He therefore brings it to the support of northern voters. Right, end quote. But the context here is is how would a northern Democrat who's trying to maintain a national Democratic Party by giving favors to pro-slavery votes and, and kind of support this idea of popular sovereignty? And, you know, Douglas is in this unenviable un position trying to get votes in Illinois for positions that are supported largely by by southern Democrats. Right? And he, he's got this pirouette on it called popular sovereignty, right? But but Lincoln knows very well that the arguments in the South being made are that the Bible defending slavery as an absolute right, and he's kind of exposing Douglas on that. And I think it's important to mention that he was, Lincoln was aware of that growing biblical defense of slavery coming from the South. Um, the second thing I wanted to point out here is, is uh, the contra, like, how we define freedom in terms of popular sovereignty. His attack on the idea that popular sovereignty is somehow, in some way, a path to greater freedom for, for Americans. And the way he looks at this, and he does actually talk about this a bit in the Douglas uh, debates, is to say, you know, let's just actually look at popular sovereignty in action. What would it actually mean at, at, at the level of the territory? He says, Douglas's popular sovereignty as a principle is simply this. If one man chooses to make a slave of another man, neither that man or anyone else has a right to object. Apply this to the government as he now seeks to apply it, and it is this. If in a new territory into which a few people are beginning to enter for the purpose of making their homes, they choose to either exclude slavery from the limits or establish it there. However, one or another may affect the persons to be enslaved, or a greater, infinitely greater number of persons who are afterwards to inhabit the territory or any other members of the family or communities of which they are but an incipient member, or the general head of the family of states as parents of all. However, their action may affect one or the others. There is no power or right to intervene. This is Douglas's popular sovereignty applied. What, what it says is, or what Lincoln's saying here is, essentially popular sovereignty enslaves future generations or future even settlers to 
the decisions of a, of a minority, right? And, and this is kind of what almost happened in Kansas, right, with the Lecompton Constitution. Early on, you had, a, you had it ended up being overwhelmingly a, a free state, right? Most of the settlers who came there were, were free state settlers. But earlier on, it was more balanced, and the slaveholding class tried to push through the Lecompton Constitution, slavehold, a, a, legal, a, a constitution that would have legalized slavery in Kansas, right, against the wills. Even Douglas opposed that, right? But... But who's to say in another situation if this minority will be able to push it through or an early majority, right? You know, at one point, maybe you have a slaveholding majority, but then most of the settlers who come oppose it. Well, they're bound by that constitution, right? So it's not really popular sovereignty. It's almost like the tyranny of that first generation of settlers over future, future generations. Now, the last thing, well, there's a little bit here about labor and capital, but this is all rehashed in the Milwaukee speech, so I'll just kick it down the, the road to that. But he does talk at the end about how to win, and I think this is very much what's on Lincoln's mind in 1858. You can really tell from the letters he's writing that what matters is winning and party unity, right? And that's his conclusion at the end is unite around some basic principles, one of which being the wrongness of slavery and the wrongness of it expanding, but... Um, build from there a, a coalition that's united on, on, on certain platforms, right? To... Now, um, the final document I'm going to talk about in this episode is his address at Milwaukee. It's to the Agricultural Society. It's, it's very political, but it's not, it's not partisan. It's not, uh, you know, I, I, Wisconsin was a Republican state. It, it voted Republican in 1856 uh, for Senate, or for, for, con for, for President. Sorry. Um, so he's probably on friendly territory largely, but he doesn't make this a political speech. He doesn't talk about the Republican Party and strategies or the slave issue directly. I mean, he does get to it. But what's interesting is there's a passage here which is lifted from the Cincinnati um, speech where he talks about, it's actually what I started this episode with was that, that quote from the Milwaukee speech, but it's almost word for word in the Cincinnati speech. It's that, um, where does wealth come from? Does it come from labor or capital? And some people say it comes from capital, in which case all that's really debated is what's the most effective and efficient way of, of organizing labor. Slavery, wage labor, those are really the two options. And Or is, is it labor that creates wealth, in which case you know, capital is just a, almost a parasite. It doesn't go that far, really. I'm, I'm kind of extending into it a little bit. But that in that sense, you know, capital becomes maybe a helper to labor. Or at worst, a kind of a paras almost a parasitical relationship to labor, extracting its its value. You know, almost a Marxist language. That's what I'm kind of dancing around here. Is there's a lot of of, of kind of Marxist almost sounding language here in this in this speech in both of them. Um, but then the more, but he two different very two very different speeches. One a political speech to Republicans in Cincinnati, trying to rally the vote, trying to rally support for the party, trying to to get party members to take certain strategies and approaches. That's on one hand. On the other hand, you have a speech basically to an agricultural fair to, you know, of, of mixed party listeners, um, but working class people, right? Farmers, you know, independent landowners, um, people who, who do create value out of their work, right? So that's, but the same passage in two different speeches that have very different purposes shows, shows to me, Anyways, that Lincoln saw free labor as key both to his political and the Republican Party and their ambitions and his overall view about wealth 
and, and, and progress and, 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 and really where value comes from, right? So it's a really, uh, it's, a, it's a great fun little speech to, to look at if you want to do kind of a lefty reading of, of Lincoln. It's harder to do that, I think, when you get into the Civil War where he's, his writings really are about the war and what the war is going to mean. And all that, um, but this is a great moment in which we see him trying to to talk about these free labor principles in a nonpartisan way to a, to what's probably a mixed audience. Um, but he uses the same language as he does when he talks to Republicans about how to win the vote. So he deals with a couple things you'd expect. One is praising the productivity of agriculture in the Northwest, and, and of course Wisconsin's one of those Northwest agricultural states. Um, and then he talks about like the growing productivity of farmers, and he's got stats from the Patent Office report showing kind of the growing wheat crops in the region. Um, but ultimately, he always seems to come back down to this this almost labor theory of value, right? He right he sp says, for instance, unquestionably, it will take more labor to produce fifty bushels from an acre than it will be to produce ten bushels from the same acre. But will it take more labor to produce fifty bushels from one acre than from five? Unquestionably. Though cultivation will require more labor to an acre, but it will require more to the bushel. If it should require just as much to the bushel, there are some probable and some certain advantages in favor of the thorough practice. Um, now, he says at the end of the day, it's, it's labor that creates value, but it's helped by technology. That's why you can get more bushels per acre now than maybe a few years ago. And he's also very clear, because obviously at an agricultural fair, he's going to be surrounded by these new technologies, these new inventions. Right, something he's, as shown from that earlier speech, something he's quite interested in. Um, and he's talking here about the, the steam plow and its, its application. And he said, it's not enough that a machine operated by steam will really plow. To be successful, it must, all things considered, plow better than can be done with animal power. It must do all the work as well and cheaper and more rapidly so as to get uh, through more perfectly in season or in some way afford an advantage over plowing with animals, else it is no success. Now, at this point, he's a bit skeptical of how successful the things he's seen will be, but he's very hopeful that the future, you know, will be one of, of, of greater agricultural productivity through technology joined with labor, right? But that opens up this problem of capital, and that's that opening passage I gave you where he argues, you know, there's this idea that, that basically the only question is how should capital organize labor, not whether... Capital's the boss or labor's the boss, right? And he calls this theory the mudsill mud sill theory. But he immediately attacks this and he says, there's another class of reasoners that hold the opinion that there's no such relationship between capital and labor as assumed, and that there is no such thing as a freeman being fatally fixed for life in the condition of a hired laborer, that both these assumptions are false and all inferences from them groundless. They hold that labor is prior to and independent of capital, that in fact labor is the fruit of, capital is the fruit of labor. Sorry, I really almost botched that. I'll start again. They hold that labor is prior to and independent of capital, that in fact capital is the fruit of labor and could never have existed if labor had not first existed. That labor can exist without capital, but capital can never have existed without labor. Hence, they hold that labor is the superior, greatly the superior of capital. They do not rely that there is and probably always will be a relationship between labor and capital. The error as they hold is the assumption that the whole labor of the world exists within that relation. A few men hold capital and a few avoid labor themselves, and with the capital hire or buy another few to labor for them. 
A great majority belong to neither class, either work for others or do not work in for, them, for them. Even in all of our slave states except South Carolina, the majority of the people of all colors are neither slaves nor masters. End quote. So that's, of course, not the situation now in America, um, where most people are working for the boss. But he's talking in the 18, 1860, saying we're not, you know, most of us are independent. Uh, and wealth, the wealth we create is independent of capital. But how he predicts the conflict of the later half of the 19th century between labor and capital and how he frames it in these terms, I think is very useful. Um, obviously, that's not going to be the, the center of, of Lincoln's presidency, right? In another world where there wasn't a civil war, maybe it could have been a bigger part of it. We'd know more about it. We'd be talking about Lincoln in these terms more than we do. Um, and again, I don't want to know. I don't. I, I don't know if he's. I don't want to say he's a Marxist. Uh, the Republican Party was informed, though, by these German, you know, emigres, the the people fleeing eighteen forty eight. Eighteen forty eight. You had revolutions in Europe. It's the same year the Communist Manifesto was written. You certainly have these ideas, you know, out there about labor theory, theory of value, about uh, the conflict between labor and capital. And it's, 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 he's connecting it to the slavery. He's connecting that same issue to slavery in, in very specific ways, right? You know, it, they're put as a type. He, he basically has labor dominated by capital or labor, capital is, is the boss and labor is basically the slave. Or the other way around, labor's the creator of value and therefore the creator of capital. In the first case, yeah, you can have wage labor or slavery, but they're kind of in the same category, right? Now, I think he would say now the moral difference between the two, as, as we should, but he doesn't, that's not the big, the, the big divide is not free labor, or sorry, the big divide is not hired hands or slavery. It's, it's free labor versus a capital dominated, you know, economic system. Um, so that's the really radical core of this Milwaukee speech. Really, really fascinating stuff. Um, he talks a little bit here also about how the need to have labor education and all that, but um, that's the heart of it. It's, it's a really great speech, and I urge you to take a look at it and give your own opinion about it. Well, definitely a speech I was excited to read and to, to know existed. Um, but that's all. That's all I, I'm going to say about 1859. Um, that, that's where Lincoln was um, in 1859. In the next episode, uh, we'll look at his writings from 1860. Um, so if you have the Library of America version, it'll be, you can just kind of follow along. If you don't, the, the focus of this will be his, the Cooper Union speech. That'll be the big thing. And then you got a lot of him, a lot of his writings that correspond to the, the campaign. I, I think it's somewhere in May or so he was chosen as the candidate. And then of course the election is in November. So that's going to be the focus of, of that. It'll be the Cooper Union speech and then the campaign. Um, but... Let me know what you think about the stuff I talked about today, especially the, the, the invention stuff, the technolo technology stuff, the, the speech to the agricultural fair in Milwaukee. Some really kind of new insight, I think, into, into Lincoln's point of view, at least for me. Um, so let me know what you think about that stuff. Leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, uh, yeah, and next time we'll talk about Lincoln in 1860 and talk about the campaign. So now thanks as always for listening. I'll see you next time. and mauling, our railmaker statesmen can do. The people are everywhere calling for.
Lincoln and Liberty too Then up with a banner so glorious The star-spangled red, white and blue We'll fight till our banner's victorious